We've been in a series called The Pursuit of Happiness, launching into this year, um, chasing after happiness. And this tension that we experience as followers of Jesus when the scriptures ask us to be joyful people and to be happy and to be joyful always. And, and I don't know about you, but I'm not batting a thousand at joyful. It doesn't always come out of me. If you squeeze me, right? You squeeze a lemon, you get lemonade. You squeeze Pastor Mike, you don't always get joy. And so I'm aware that, that being a joyful person and being a happy person and pursuing that is a process and I have to walk into that. And so for the last several weeks, we've been unpacking some of the ways that the scriptures help us to do that. And we talked about uh, the story of Tabitha a few weeks ago and how small acts of kindness uh, created this wealth of gratitude and a culture of, of gratitude around her and changed and transformed the early church. Um, we talked last week about Paul writing from a prison cell talking about joy and, and, and strength in all circumstances and saying that essentially your circumstance is not the source of your contentment. Your contentment comes from Christ and knowing who God is in every circumstance. He's the source of our strength, the source of our joy, not our circumstance. And so this morning we're unpacking part of how to live this out and walk this out. And today we're talking about a joy that comes, a different kind of joy, a happiness that I had not known prior to doing this, that comes when we serve the way we were designed to serve, the way Jesus designed us. You know, I was trying to think about the first time I really served in a way that I was designed to serve. And, and I was thinking all the way back to when I first became a, a believer, a follower of Jesus. I was in high school. And, and one of the cool things we got to do was we went on a, a missions trip to Mexico. Now, what's amazing is our church is getting ready to go on a mission trip to Mexico. So you, if you've never done something like this, have an opportunity. In May, we're going to go. Uh, Charlie is the resource for that. You can check the website. There's information out there. If you want to go and be a part of something like this, we want to build a house. It's going to be amazing. But I was a uh, junior in high school. I'll say it's not nose kid, because I was. And, uh, and we were going to Mexico. And you know what I was excited about? I was excited about buying things in Mexico that I couldn't buy in the United States and smuggling them into the United States. As a matter of fact, in our beat-up 15-passenger van that we had, <laughs> I didn't tell First Service this, but I bought a butterfly knife, and I cut into the felt in the back side of one of the, uh, the panels of the van, and I stuffed it in there and smuggled it in from Mexico because I was that kid in your youth group. So uh, it's only fitting that for years and years and years, I did student ministries and dealt with all those kids. They could get away with nothing because I thought of it all. But... We were, going to, <laughs> we were going to Mexico, and I was so excited, and, you know, it was a big deal. And my high school sweetheart, who's now my bride, she's, oh, good, she's not in here. I can talk about her. She's probably helping kids right now. Cool. <laughs> Cut the feed for a second here on the website. All right. So my high school sweetheart uh, and I, we were heading down there. And as we got ready to go down there, our youth pastor said, listen, you're going to be in a new culture, and there's going to be different rules and expectations on your behavior. This is not a Bay Area culture that you're going into when we go into Mexico. And one of the things we have to do is be very respectful of their culture. So I don't want to see anyone holding hands or cuddling or kissing or any of that nonsense to which I said, I would never do that with my high school sweetheart. So we made a plan. There was one other couple that was on the trip and our plan was every evening we would alternate having a crisis that would require all the adults to pay attention to us while the other couple went and said goodnight, right? For the time. And <laughs> Wait, you guys, are, you guys don't think that's cool? All right, we'll move on. Oh, there's too many teenagers in here. That's why you're not laughing. Or don't do that, teenagers. That's awful. But, uh, but that was my plan. That was what, that's what this trip was going to mean to me until we got there. And we got there, 
And there was a series of things going on. There were houses being built and street ministry happening and ministry in churches. And one of the things where, where I kind of came online to this idea of genuine, true joy by just serving the way I was designed to serve, we were at an orphanage. Now listen, I thought I knew what poor was because my family didn't just give me whatever I wanted. I thought I knew what poor was because at age 11, I had a, a, a paper route. And if I wanted fun things, I bought those fun things and I earned them on my own. And I thought I knew what poor was because, you know, I had friends that had nicer things than I had. And then suddenly I found myself in an environment with, with other kids that literally had no things. And we're out there and, you know, uh, some of the group was making crafts and I'm not very crafty. So I didn't have kind of a purpose and I'm looking around and, and I see some of the guys that are there in the orphanage and they don't want to make crafts. And my buddy's with me and he had brought a soccer ball. I was like, oh, go to the van and get your soccer ball. And we get the soccer ball and, hey, you guys want to play? And they light up. And pretty soon we're out in this dirt field just kicking the soccer ball around. And I'm knocking kids over from the orphanage because I'm competitive and I don't care who you are. Um, <laughs> and we're making friends and they're knocking into me and we're having fun. It's this great moment, right? And it's just, we're just loving them and it's fun and everything's normal. And then we go to leave and there's this countenance shift like, oh, you're leaving. And then I realize they don't have a ball. So this is it for playing soccer for them. So I poke my guy, my buddy. I'm like, hey, give him the ball. He's like, okay. And he gives him the ball and they light up. And I get to the van. Now, listen, there was all these opportunities. I, I, you know, I had a little pre-done message I shared at a church, and there was some outreach things that we did. But I'll tell you something. That moment, gifting to someone who had nothing, something small that I could do at 16 years old, snot-nosed, too much gel in my hair, Superman curl coming down through the front, party in the back. That kid, little wannabe gangster, with the party in the back. I don't know how I did it. I was mixing all the cultures. That moment, I came online to a type of joy and happiness that I had never experienced that came from just doing the thing I was designed to do by serving someone else in that way. And I realized it, it, it had not just the impact it changed their life, it changed me. I was never the same having done that. And today, I'm, I'm going to talk specifically to those of you who would say, yeah, I'm a follower of Jesus for a little while here. And those of you who are maybe asking questions, or you got drug here by a friend, or you're making mom or grandma happy, or it's the only way to get lunch later, or just avoid the fight, um, you'll love this. Uh, you'll enjoy it, because uh, I'm going to be hard on us a little bit. And there's some things I'm going to talk about that are going to maybe ignite for you. Hey, that answers some of the questions about why I've been wondering why I see this disconnect between what Jesus people say and what Jesus people do, but you're off the hook because I'm going to talk to those of us that would say, yeah, I would identify as someone who follows Jesus, and I'm going to have just a little honest conversation with you and I together in the room about the kind of happiness and joy that comes when we actually do the thing that Jesus asked us, invited us to do as followers of him. Here's a question I have for you. Those of us that would say we're following uh, Jesus, you ever feel stuck in your walk with God? You ever feel like you have kind of hit a point where you're just in a rotation, a pattern, the world's just going around and you're not moving forward, you're not moving to the next step, you're not moving to the next place, you're not going deeper in your walk with the Lord. You might be learning new things, you might be hearing some new messages, but there's not the kind of transformation that you were used to experience because I believe when you first started on this journey with Jesus, there were some big impactful transformational things that were happening. You were giving things up. You were gaining new things. You were learning new things. There was excitement. There was joy. There was power. Transformation that was occurring and happening. 
And on that journey with Jesus, sometimes along the road, we start finding ourselves in places where we begin to feel stuck. And what happens is we get frustrated. Sometimes we take that frustration to God. God, what are you doing? Why aren't you pushing me into the next season? Why aren't you carrying me into the new things? Where's the power I saw before on display? We get frustrated with God. Sometimes we get frustrated with the church. If that pastor would just get his act together, if he'd just implement a new program or bring in a better whatever, or just preach better or shorter at least. Or we get frustrated if there was just more things going on that we could do and get involved in or whatever. And we think the church is an organization and a bunch of systems and we forget the church is people. It's you. You're the church. And we get frustrated and we get stuck. Sometimes we just get busy. We're stuck because we're so busy. I know things that I could do to push out of this season where I'm stuck, but I don't got, ain't nobody got time for that. I have no margins. I'm pressed to my ends. I can only do so many things. I'm working too much. There's too much crazy going on in my family already. I know that there's teaching that, that Jesus gave to us, but I can't do it. I'm just too busy. And so we get frustrated. We're frustrated at our own spiritual lives. We're frustrated at the church. We're frustrated at our faith. We feel like something is missing. Why? Because something is missing. You're right. Something is missing. So how do we do it? How do we push through? How do we grow in our faith. You know, um, several years ago, early 2000s, there was a, a massive study that came out uh, by then, uh, the then largest church in America it was uh, called Willow Creek. And it was, uh, the study was called Reveal. And, and what they did, they were like the first kind of, not the first, but they were the largest mega church, big organization, church place. Um, it was based out of Chicago. And they brought an outside organization in because they'd been taking a lot of criticism, essentially. And the criticism looked something like this. You grew really, really big, but you're not very deep. You've generated a bunch of shallow Christians and, and, uh, and that, that faith that's come so cheaply doesn't seem to stick. And so they reached out to an outside organization, not a faith-based organization, and they just said, hey, you, you're an organization that goes into uh, any other business or any other kind of organizations and evaluates, are you hitting your mission? Are you hitting your goals? Are you doing well? Come in and evaluate us. And they had this massive and I think humbling, uh, exposing uh, study that came out. And it talked about uh, how fast and how rapidly things had grown and things. And essentially they said they identified this large group of people who were professed believers, but identified themselves as stalled. We've stalled in our journey. We were going somewhere, but we've stalled. We're stuck now. We're no longer moving forward in our faith. And they said that large numbers of people who are professed to believe in Jesus are actually would identify and say, yeah, I believe in Jesus. It's just not going anywhere. So then they looked for people who would say, no, I'm not stalled. I'm moving somewhere. And they said, what are the defining characteristics of people who believe they're moving somewhere? They are going somewhere. They're not stalled. And there were two key, key areas. One was attitudes and one was behaviors. And the core attitude they defined as being an increasing love for God and people. Moving out of the stuck phase, out of the stalled phase, required an attitude, a decision, a choice, a mentality that I'm not just in love with God and people. I have an increasing amount of love for God and for people. And the behaviors that led to that attitude were defined as giving, serving, outreach, relationally connecting with other believers. 
These were key behaviors that were required to have an attitude that moved you out of being stalled. Essentially, they were saying, we have to get in the game and do something. Now, it's fascinating, but it's true. You know, for, for years, I was involved in kind of the sports world. I ran sports organizations and, and, uh, and teams and had hired coaches and ran organizations and did some stuff through the park and recs. And I've been involved in sports worlds for a long time. But there's a thing that you see that happens every once in a while in the sports world especially if you're around like junior highs and high schools, right? What'll happen is at any given high school, this group of kids will come together and they're all really good at the same time. You'll have a freshman basketball team and they're just studs. And all five of them make varsity or four or five of them will make varsity. And they're just exceptional. This group all comes together. They're playing together since they were kids and they're really, really good. They play varsity, but they get crushed because they're four years younger than all those guys. So even though they're the best freshmen you ever saw, they're getting stomped on by these other varsity guys. But they all play varsity. Then the next year, they're sophomores and they play varsity again and they're like even. And then they're juniors and they play varsity and they're doing really, really good. And by seniors, they're winning state championships. And you know what happens to that program usually the next year? They stink. They fall off a cliff. Why? Because for four years, there's been five people who have been in the game. And no one else ever got a chance to get in the game. And sometimes I worry that in the kingdom of God, there's only a few people who want to get in the game. And you're looking out and we're saying, why is everyone? Yeah, I don't have to get in the game. Look at these guys. They're doing great up there. They're in the game. And we have too many people on the bench. And God's saying, listen, I didn't design you all to just ride the pine. I want you to get in the game. And you're like, well, I don't do that role. I'm not sure what my role is. Yeah, whatever your role is, get in the game. If you're supposed to get water, get water. But we have to get off the bench. If I'm honest, there's areas in my own life right now where I know I'm on the bench because I've been too busy. I've had too many things going on. Maybe it's fear. If I say yes to this, I might drop the ball over here. It might cost too much. It might make something else happen. Maybe it's hurt. I tried that and I got rejected. Maybe it's fear that I did it, but when I did it, everyone else stayed on the bench and I was out there playing by myself and I got crushed and now I'm exhausted and I'm tired and I'm frustrated. It's not my job anymore. It's someone else's job. I feel like I tried to play and no one else came out. I had to do things that weren't what I was supposed to do. You know, I was thinking about this. It's, uh, it's pretty funny because I had to do dishes this, uh, yesterday and uh, we were out of knives and I needed to cut something. I was like, oh, I'll just cut it with a spoon. <laughs> Manpower and brunt force, right? And you can do it. You can cut something with a spoon. But it's not pretty. It's not how it's designed. You can hammer a nail in with the back of your shoe. But it's not going to be effective. You're going to probably ruin the shoe and you're going to sweat a lot and it's not going to work. And some of you are frustrated because you're a spoon and you'd be happy to be a spoon. But you've had to be a knife because all the knives are on the bench. Or you're a shoe and, and you're like, I'd love to help us get where we're going. I'd love to walk and move and do that. But I'm over here whacking nails, taking a beating because Mr. Hammer over there, Mrs. Hammer over there, MC Hammer, go Hammer. No, um, <laughs> the hammer's not doing his job. And so we withdraw and we get frustrated and we level off. And we think, you know what? That one's not my job. <laughs> you know how often I have to fight that in my just core? That's not my job. This week, I was walking around the parking lot, talking on the phone, because if I don't walk around the parking lot when I talk on my phone, I'll be 600 pounds. 
I have to move around at least some point, so I do it when I'm on the phone. Even if rain or shine, I walk around. And so I'm walking around the parking lot. It's raining on me. I got my jacket on, but at least I'm moving. I'm on the phone. And I look down, and there's some garbage, and I'm like, I'll go pick that garbage up. And I walk over to the garbage, and it's a plastic bag. And then I realize this isn't just any plastic bag. This is someone was walking their dog, and they picked up his mess and put it in this plastic bag. And I had this moment where I was like, well, they didn't throw it away, but at least I don't have to go get a shovel. I can just grab the bag. Then I realized this bag's been run over. And I'm all the way over there looking at it. And you know what went into the core of my being? This is not my job. <laughs> this is not my job. And the moment, <laughs> somebody else's job. Yeah. <laughs> I didn't do that. I just want you to know they love you in the back. <laughs> this is not my job. That was one of our elders. That was Marshall. Um, and the moment that that hit, it was like, a, it just pained me in my spirit. It said, are you above picking this up? I was like, you need to pick this up. Then I was like, Holy Spirit, can I go get a glove? <laughs> and I was like, you know what? I'll find a clean spot and I'll just do it. Because if I walk into the building, I'm not going to walk back out. <laughs> I'll, just, I'll just be like, well, I don't know what you're talking about. So I picked it up and I, I won't give you all the messy details, but it's in the garbage right now. Did I like f feel this elation and joy at that? No, but you know what? I could do it. My elbow works, my back works, my wrist works, my knees work, more or less. I can pick that up. Some of you have a, it's not my job mentality. And it's something you could just do in the kingdom and just be who God designed you to be and serve. But no, it's someone else's job. And so we freeze up, we lock up and we stay stuck. We've been talking about this passage. I'm gonna be in Galatians, uh, Galatians 6, 5, but ultimately in John 13, if you're a Bible person and you wanna get ahead of me. We've been talking about this passage from Galatians for a while now, but it's, it's very true and it's been wrecking me because I don't like it. And Paul says, he says, hey, let us not become weary in doing good. <laughs> for at the proper time, I, I, can, I, can, we just, can we be family in church? I looked up there and because I'm thinking about poop, I was like, at the poop time, when the poop is on the ground at the proper time, we'll reap a harvest. I just lost you all right there. Come back to me. Come back to me. At the proper time, we'll reap a harvest if we don't give up. Here's why this verse has been just thrashing me. Because as a pastor, I care that you don't burn out. I care that you don't get exhausted. I care that you rest. I don't know if you've ever heard a pastor preach about rest as much as I preach about rest. You probably think, hey, how come every fifth message is about rest? Are you okay, pastor? I'm okay. But I care that you rest. I care that you live the way God intended and designed you to do, that you enjoy his creation, that you take a Sabbath, that you do what God modeled, the behavior he modeled for Adam in the garden and you rest. I care about that a lot. And because I care about that, I'm highly concerned that you don't wear yourself out by serving. And then I read this passage and it basically says, Pastor Mike, get out of the way. I'm talking to my people and they need to hear me say, don't, Get weary in doing good. Don't give up. Don't tap out when you're doing the thing you're designed to do. Don't throw in the towel. Don't get frustrated because the bench guy won't get in because the hammer won't swing like he's supposed to. Don't give up because at the proper time, you'll reap a harvest if you don't give up. I don't want to shortchange, and this is conf conflict for me. I don't want to shortchange your blessing because I'm working so hard to protect you from burnout that I get you to quit before you get to your blessing. 
You need to think about what I just said there for a second. I'm concerned as your pastor that I'm so concerned about making sure you don't burn out that I might convince you to quit before you get to your blessing. So I'm having a hard time with this. Can we just have a group session therapy right now? I'm Sharon. Hi, I'm Mike, and I'm a don't know how hard to workaholic. But I understand that the principle in the scripture is you're designed to do good works and it never turns off. And you rest. And you don't have to feel guilt about that. You're designed for it. And I don't have to feel guilt when you do it. That's the truth. Verse 10, therefore, as we have opportunity, let's do good to all people. And we never talk about this, especially to those who belong to the family of believers, especially to your family, especially. It's a crushing thing for me, but I just recognize I don't have permission to give up. I don't have permission to give up. I keep pursuing doing good and I don't give up. I rest, but I don't give up. Same, same for you. Same principle in play for you. Pastor, it sounds like you're trying really hard to guilt me into serving. No, let me back completely away from that position by backing up a little bit in the text, Galatians 5. <clears throat> a little bit earlier, Paul is talking about this. He's introducing this principle and he says something incredible. He goes, hey, you, my brothers and sisters, you were called to be free. Isn't that beautiful? You were called to be free. Jesus called you, God called you, designed you, said, hey, I want you, John, I want you to be free. You were called to be free. You have freedom. Look at somebody say, you're free. Oh, that was so weak. I'm gonna wake you up right here. Just say it with me on the count of three, I'm free. One, two, three, I'm free. Oh, there was a little bit. That was a little bit. You wouldn't have been heard at a Puerto Rican dinner table. No one would have caught you there. You gotta be a little more assertive because I would be over here talking and your whole I free statement would have just got drowned out in my story about picking up poop, all right? So we're gonna try one more time. Like you're trying to be heard at the table, all right? On the count of three, I wanna hear you say I'm free. One, two, three, I'm free. Oh, come on, somebody. There was my church. I knew you were out there. You were called to be free. And he says, but don't use that freedom to indulge in the sinful nature. That freedom wasn't permission giving so that you can destroy your life and the lives of others. That wasn't the purpose of gifting you freedom, of bringing you and drawing you into freedom. As a matter of fact, he says, rather serve one another in what? Oh, about half of you stayed awake for a full like 60 seconds there. Serve one another in love, he says. He doesn't say serve one another out of guilt, serve one another out of duty. He says, serve one another, use your freedom, enjoy your freedom, and then choose to serve one another in love because it's awesome to serve one another in love. It releases freedom into your life when you serve one another in love. It's rewarding. It brings joy. It brings happiness. It brings fulfillment. When you serve out of guilt and obligation, it does nothing for the kingdom of God and does nothing for you. It doesn't. It is actually the worst thing that can happen to our church if all of you just began to just go into guilt and obligation mode. If you gave or you serve out of that way, listen, the worst case scenario, the offering's already gone around. This is not manipulating the offering, right? But the worst thing that can happen to us is that you're in a row and the offering's coming through and someone gives and you have this sense of, oh man, I better at least put something in because I don't wanna be the guy that does. Like that heart, that attitude is not helpful to the kingdom at all. Save it, save it. It's not beneficial. You know what happens when you respect and honor that when you just do it before man in order to please man and look good before man? You just got all of the reward right there. 
There's no further reward, no further blessing. That's it. That's a wrap. You wasted it. That's not helpful. That's why we say things like, we don't want you to feel guilt or obligation when you give. It's part of our worship and trusting God. Same thing when you serve. When you serve because you felt guilt and obligation, shame, like you got manipulated, you owed something, so it's a debt, and you was, like, you can do that, but that's the end of the blessing. It doesn't extend beyond that. It only works if you serve one another in love because it's who you're designed to be and what you want to do. Some of you are trying to track with me, and you're like, I'm not sure. I'm totally with you. But I'm telling you, it's meaningless service. Guilt-driven service is meaningless. We serve out of love, in love, because of who God is. We're designed to serve. Ephesians 2.10, I mean, we know this passage. It says, uh, <clears throat> for your God's workmanship, created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. It's fulfilling your purpose. You don't serve, you are serve. It's not a thing you do. It's your function. You're a knife, you cut. And when you cut, you're like, this is awesome, I'm cutting. When I'm pushing over kids and kicking the ball away from them, I'm in the zone. I was designed to do that. It's joy and it's life-giving and we're celebrating and we're being together and we're making fun of each other and we're getting to know one another and we're finding freedom in Jesus and it's amazing. Do the thing you were designed to do. It's good. It's healthy. It's exciting. It's life-giving. Jesus demonstrates this the best. If you have your Bibles, I'm going to go to John 13 and you know the passage. You've seen this before because I'm talking to church people and you can't be a church people for very long and you haven't heard this. But I want us to catch some incredible truths here. John chapter 13, <clears throat> they're just about to eat the Passover feast. It's near the end of Jesus's life and ministry. If you look at uh, Matthew 26 and John 13, you get more of the timeline of the things that are happening. John's very concerned about all the words of Jesus and Matthew kind of gives a little more history of what's happening in this moment. But essentially, prior to this, um, they, uh, the woman with the alabaster jar has broken the perfume over Jesus's head. From that moment, Judas decided to betray Jesus. He's went, he's made his transaction. His coin purse is heavy uh, with silver and they decide to take the Passover meal. They go to a house that's been prepared for them and they walk into this house to take the meal. Now I gotta give you a little just historical context because this might not make sense to every culture because it's not the way I do culture, probably not the way you do culture. But in this Jewish tradition, some 2000 years ago, this is what it was like to walk into someone's house. You gotta understand a couple things. Number one, they live in a desert dry climate. And they wear sandals, and only sandals. There's not Nikes, there's not boots. They don't got Uggs. They wear sandals, leather-strapped sandals. Listen, I was I'm completely blessed. I was able to go to Israel last year, and I spent hours researching the best shoe. Do I want a tennis shoe, a hiking boot, a hiking tennis shoe? They make those, like, you know, what do you want? And I started looking for, and I'm going to, like, uh, REI-type stores and, and trying on different things. And I, I did all that research just for one kind of shoe that I haven't worn since I went to Israel. Special shoes for walking around there. Why? Because I know it's going to be sandy and rough and hard climate. And that's a, it's a city now. There's, like, paved roads and streetlights and, you know, 7-Eleven-type stores. Back in this time, they're in the desert climate with not paved roads. 
and they're wearing flip-flops with straps around them. So when you went to someone's house, I don't know about your house, if you came to my house, let's give an example. You came to my house, number one, you're wearing a coat and probably have an umbrella because it rains every day here. And I'm gonna offer to take your coat, right? And I'm gonna say, hey, let me take your coat and I'll put it on a rack or on the back of a chair or, or in my coat closet, right? And then you'll say something like, oh, should I kick my shoes off? And I'll say, I don't really care if you kick your shoes off. We kick our shoes off. So, you know, how comfortable are you with your socks? And then you'll make a decision about which socks you're wearing and then you'll decide whether or not you wanna kick your shoes off right? And then you'll come into the table and I'll say, hey, have a seat. What would you like to drink? Right? And, and you'll say, well, what do you have? Or I'm fine. Or I'll say, I have water or I have either Diet Pepsi or Coke Zero. That's like what I have in my house right now. And you'll say, oh, I don't want any of that. What about coffee? I'll say, oh, I got to make you a cup of coffee. And so we'll sit down and we'll talk. And that's kind of just normal hospitality, right? Maybe a similar experience in your house. At this time, it was normal hospitality because of the sandy uh, nature of living in desert country and flip-flops and sandals. You'd walk in and it was normal to have a basin at the base of the door and it would be a water basin and it was normal to kick off your muddy sandals and your dirty feet and then you're just barefoot after that and you would wipe and wash your feet off in this basin that was at the foot of the door. Now, if I was a person of any influence or affluence, I may have a servant or in, in their vernacular, a slave, and that lowest person in my household would have the job of greeting my guest and saying, let me help wipe your feet for you, okay? So either you would have the response. Now, it would never be on the host to do that. It would be disrespectful to the host to ask them to wash your feet. That wasn't something that you would do to the host. But if they had a servant or a slave, they would do it, or you would do it yourself out of respect to the host as part of the hospitality because your feet are a mess, Two other things are common that would happen. One you know and one you might not know. The other thing that happened is the, the male of the household would come up and greet you with a holy kiss. How glad are you that that tradition isn't the same? We got some big grizzly bear beards that I don't ever want to know what that feels like on my forehead. But that would just be normal to get that big kiss, bam, slammed right on your forehead. And the other thing that was normal to do is if the house was of some affluence would be to give you some oil because it's very dry there. So they put a little oil on your hands, maybe a little bit in your hair to just kind of relax, make yourself comfortable. That would have been what happened in that culture. So we get into this picture of Jesus and his 12 disciples. They are uh, now uh, have just experienced uh, uh, the alabaster jar of clay. He doesn't need any oil. Judas has agreed to betray them somewhere in there. He probably still smells pretty good. And he walks into the house and apparently some of the normal things of hospitality have not happened yet. And so take a look at what's going on here in verse uh, one of chapter 13. And it says, it was just before the Passover feast, Jesus knew that the time had come for him to leave the world and go to his father, having loved his own who were in the world. He now showed them the full extent of, of his love. Some versions say he loved them all the way to the end. He says he knew that it was about time. What's crazy about this is in the timeline of, of the story of the life of Jesus, what happens next? They're going to have this moment together. They're going to take the Passover meal, which is where we get communion from, this final Passover meal. He's going to break bread with them and have that conversation. Then they're going to move to the garden. On the way to the garden, they're going to pass some grapes in a vineyard. And the, the, the Olivet Discourse of, you know, I'm the vine, you're the branches, this incredible teaching moment's going to happen. Then they're going to pray in the garden of Gethsemane. And he's going to pray and he's going to like, you guys pray, I'm going to pray over here. He's praying, they turn around, they're asleep. He's like, come on guys, pray with me for like an hour. I just need 
some help right now. And they're like, okay. And he prays and he comes back and they're asleep again. And he's like, forget it. And then pretty soon the guards are gonna come. Judas is gonna betray him. The next kiss on the head isn't gonna be a hospitality kiss. It's going to be a kiss goodbye, basically. Judas is gonna betray him with a kiss. Peter's gonna swing his sword. An ear's gonna chop off. A healing's gonna happen. Jesus is like, we're not gonna set up the kingdom this way. Then he's gonna be arrested. He's gonna spend the night in Caiaphas's house. There's gonna be a mockery of a trial. There's gonna be a cross. And then the end. That's it for his life. We know three days later, some pretty exciting things are going to happen. But this is it for his journey, walking with these guys. But he ain't done teaching yet. And some of the hospitality isn't happening. And he wants to show them the full extent of his love. Now I got to predicate this with, uh, with this principle from John chapter five earlier. John wants us to understand something about Jesus. And Jesus says, listen, Jesus gave him this answer. I tell you the truth. The son can do nothing by himself. He can do only what he sees the father doing. Did you catch that? Jesus says, I only do what I see the father doing because whatever the father does, the son also does. Now this is an incredible truth and testimony about Jesus. Up until this point, everything these people know about God, they've read in scrolls or had read to them. It's part of their tradition and their story. And suddenly God, in, in, in an incredible way, says, I want you to have context of what I'm like. So I'm going to come into the earth in a human body. And here's Jesus, fully God, fully man. And he articulates this incredible principle. He says, listen, pay attention to the way I behave because everything I do is only what I've seen the Father doing. And there's nothing that I can do that doesn't line up with the Father's heart and what the Father does. All of my behaviors are, you want to know what God the Father is like? Look at the life of Jesus. The way he behaves, the way he treats people, the way he interacts. Look at who he chooses to associate with. Look at how he treats people who are caught in sin and made mistakes. Look at how he demonstrates mercy and grace. Look at who he gets indignant at and when he gets indignant. If you want to understand how God the Father works, just look at the life of Jesus because he says, I only, I'm telling you the truth, I don't do anything by myself. Everything I do is what the Father wants. Everything I do is what I've seen the Father doing. So Jesus walks in and he's teaching and he's not done teaching yet. And no one put the basin out by the door. And they've all shuffled in and they begin to eat. Verse 2, it says, The evening meal was being served and the devil had already prompted Judas Iscariot, son of Simon, to betray Jesus. Jesus knew that the Father had put all things under his power and that he had come to God and was returning to God. There's so much power in that statement. I could just, if I just had time, if you guys would sit still for two hours, I would go that far. Come on now. No, I got no amens there? Okay. So I'm not gonna go for two hours, don't worry. But I could, I would just unpack for you that he currently had access to all the power. Not some of the power, not a little bit of the power, not a piece of the power, not a slice of the power, not a human capacity amount of the power. He had all the power. Everything was available to him. All power he had. And he knew he was returning to God. So how did he use his power? Verse four. So he got up from the meal, took off his outer clothing, and wrapped a towel around his waist. Now listen. Hospitality things have changed. But if I invite you to my house, and we're eating dinner, Michael Osberger, and you get up, and you strip down to your boxers, and wrap a towel around your waist, I'm going to make you leave. (laughs) 
I'm going to get you out of the house. I'm going to ask you nicely and then with escalating amounts of violence and force until you're out of my house. Because something ain't right. And he gets up and he strips down to just his outer garment and he wraps a towel around his waist. And after that, he pours water into a basin and he begins to wash his disciples' feet, drying them with a towel that was wrapped around him. Jesus looks around at his closest group of guys. And you have to imagine, there had to be a moment when they walked in the house and they're kicking off their shoes and they go, oh, there's no basin here. And they look around, no one's washing feet. Okay, well, I guess we're just eating without washing our feet today. We're traveling in a kind of nomadic lifestyle. And so, you know, not everyone has their hospitality up to the top level of what we would expect. So we're just gonna sit down and eat. And there had to be a moment when they all recognized that it was unusual in terms of hospitality, but okay that it had happened, that no one had done that. And there was nobody in the room who had a moment where they were like, hey, can I get a basin of water here for this thing? They all were kind of, hey, we're the group that's with Jesus. And it's, you know, no one did this thing for us, so they all kind of come in together. And Jesus looks around and goes, oh, no one's offering? Okay, I got this. Yeah, we all see the bag of poop out there. No one's offering? Okay, I got this. I got this. So he starts washing feet, and I love this. He gets to Simon, Peter, verse six. It says, he came to Simon Peter, and he said, Lord, are you gonna wash my feet? Now, I just want you to get the visual. He's already stripped down. He's got the towel around him. He's washing feet. Here you go. Here you go. Here you go. Oh, Peter. Peter's like, oh, are you going to wash my feet? It's like, dude, welcome to the conversation. Do you see what's happening here? I'm in a towel. I have the basin of water. I'm sitting in front of you. Yes, that's what's going to happen here. Simon was notorious for putting his dirty foot right into his mouth, and I love him for it. And Jesus replied, you don't realize now what I'm doing, but later you're going to understand this. No, said Peter, you'll, you'll never wash my feet. And I think many of us would have responded this way. Many of us would have had this kind of response. I've had, you know, the incredible honor and privilege to, to host some people who were heroes in my life or leaders in my life, people I looked up to, modeled my life after, had a chance to have them for dinner or take them out to dinner. Or whatever. And I'm in a mode of hospitality and deference for them because of just the respect I have for the authority that they've had in my life. And these people aren't God. And it would be incredibly humiliating, embarrassing for me, for them when I'm hosting them to, to turn around and start doing hospitality type things towards me. Don't do that. I got that. I'm, I'm the one who's here to show deference and respect to you. And so it's normal for Peter to have this reaction because he has the person with him who he calls Messiah, who he calls Lord, Master, Teacher. And Jesus is modeling this and he's like, uh-uh, not for me. Now listen. I know that they had to have had that moment when they walked in and no one washed their feet. There's, there had to have been a moment like that. And I bet you there was a little twinge when he started washing feet. Like, oh, I totally should have done that. You familiar with that twinge? I've had it. That moment when you see someone's need or you see a potential way that you could serve, something you could do, and you're like, ah, nobody got time for that. I'm busy right now, or I can't do anything like that. And then, and then you have that twinge, you drive by, and suddenly it's like the Holy Spirit pokes you on the shoulder and says, that was the one. You should have inconvenienced yourself. You should have given a little bit more. You should have stepped out on faith. You should have taken the risk. You should, and you're like, oh, I couldn't do it, though, because I got a meeting in five minutes. My coffee's getting cold. You know what happens to us? We get gifted, gifted. We get stronger 
the more we ignore that little twinge of the Holy Spirit, that little prickling of the Holy Spirit, we start going, I know it's my design and I could have served and I could have stuck around and I could have put the thing away and I could have helped and I could have pushed the car. I just believe they probably got AAA. It's going to be fine. And you're like, oh, I got other things going on. And you just kind of move past it. I'm really busy right now. I'm really important. This is a big meeting. We're having a big dinner. It's a big deal. And you move just past the thing. And pretty soon you start training yourself. Come on, church. I'm the only one that's honest in the room. You start training yourself to move on and not stop and not help and not do it. And Jesus is like, listen, you don't understand it fully right now, but you're going to understand it. Peter's like, well, you don't want you to wash my feet. I already feel it. And then Jesus says this powerful phrase. He goes, unless I wash you, you have no part of me. Mic drop. Stop trying to be in charge, Peter. School's in session. You have to learn this principle. You have to watch me respond to the prompting of hospitality and service and giving my life away and demonstrating for you that while all power and authority is in my hand, the way I use the power and authority that comes from my relationship with the Father is I take it to people and serve and bless and lift them up. I don't use it to lift me up. He says, you're going to learn this. You're going to learn something, son. Otherwise, you have no part of me. Verse 9, Simon's like, they're not my feet, my hands, and my head as well. And there's a teaching moment here. And Jesus is like, this isn't a person that has a bath, doesn't have to wash his whole feet. His whole body is clean. Uh, if he washes his feet, his whole body is clean. You're clean. They're not every one of you. <clears throat> For he knew that he who was going to betray him. And that's why he said not everyone was clean. There's a whole message in there about betrayal. If I go there, we'll be at two hours. But he's basically saying, hey, I'm teaching a specific lesson right now. And Peter, you're messing up my illustration. And there is a truth in here. I'm trying to paint a big picture for you about using your power and strength to serve and bless one another. Verse 12, when he finished washing his feet, their feet, he put on his clothes and he returned to his place. Do you understand what I've done for you? He asked them. You call me teacher and Lord and rightly so for that is what I am. Now that I, your teacher and Lord, have washed your feet, you should also wash one another's feet. Now he doesn't mean go right now and wash one another's feet. Their feet are clean. He just made that point. He's saying, you should do what I've done. You should see the model. As a matter of fact, he uses the words, I've sent you an example that you should do as I have done for you. I tell you the truth. No servant is greater than his master, nor is a messenger greater than the one who sent him. Now that you know these things, I love this, you'll be blessed if you do them. Is this a, is this a, a, a baited hook? No, he's just saying, when you do the thing you're designed to do, it unlocks blessing in your life. It brings provision in your life. You feel joy, excitement, happiness, fulfillment because you've been and done what God's designed you to do. You've served. He's like, you'll be blessed if you do that. It's awesome when you do that. He says, this is amazing. He's just about done teaching. Last supper, garden, cross. And at the finale of his teaching, he's saying, listen, you're not going to understand it right just in this moment, but you're going to get it later. You're going to receive power. I have all the power right now, but you're going to receive power. You're going to have to decide how you use that power. And are you going to use that power to lift and edify yourself and empower yourself and generate more for yourself? Or are you going to see what the master did, what the teacher did? Are you going to understand that the greatest in the kingdom of heaven becomes the least, that the last becomes first, that if you want to become great in the kingdom of, of heaven, you'll become the servant of all? Is that going to get in you? because that's how I did it. Are you gonna get a hold of that? 
Why is serving such a hard thing to get our minds around then? Well, it's because we're challenged by some things that aren't true. Our culture, our world, the climate, our lives teach us and train us some things that are just flat out not true about serving. So I'm gonna give you some myths that are connected to serving and, uh, and we're gonna unpack them as, as time will allow and then, uh, and then we'll land the plane here. But culture has just taught us a set of false rules about serving, so we gotta reprogram a little bit. We gotta reprogram a little bit. There's some myths out there that come with serving. And the first one is just this, that serving's not really that important. All power and authority was given unto him, so he stripped down to his drawers, put a towel around himself, and served. With all power, with all authority, he demonstrated serving is what we do. This is how we become great in the kingdom of God. Do you know how he transformed this group of people? He trained them that they had to take what culture said success was and disregard it and believe what kingdom said success was. Kingdom success was giving your life away, loving God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and loving your neighbor as yourself. That was kingdom success. He realigned them towards what a win was. Serving's not really that important, except Jesus did it. Not only did he do it, he said, the blessing and provision of following me comes when you do it. You'll be blessed when you do it. (laughs) Second myth we run into all the time. uh, I only serve when I have extra time. I'll just let you deal with that for a second. I only serve when I have extra time, (laughs) except scripture just told us he loved them till the end. He's out of time. His earthly moments are just about over and he's modeling service all the way until the end. But you don't understand, Pastor Mike, I'm so busy. I don't have extra time. I'm just telling you, serving wasn't something it did. He did, it's who he was. I don't know what you're busy as, but if you shut off that, that response to the Holy Spirit when you have opportunity and time to serve, then I'm just telling you, it's not working out. That's a swing and a miss. And you may have to believe some other scriptures about rest and Sabbath that I've been preaching over and over and over again so you can get some margin in your life so you can live some scripture here and get some of the power and blessing and provision that comes with it so you can get unstuck. Stop telling me you're stuck, but you're too busy. I don't know how to help you navigate that tension any more clearer than that. I'm busy, you're busy, we're busy. Yay, we're all busy. And... We're the people who follow Jesus. We're the people who live like Jesus. We're the people who Jesus said, come and follow me. And then he demonstrates his love like this. I'll serve when I have some time. How about this? I should get something back when I serve. I should get something back when I serve. It should come back to me. I should have a reward. I will serve as long as there's some quid pro quo involved. I'll serve you, scratch your back. You'll serve me, I'll scratch my back. So I helped you move, but you didn't help me move. So now you're in debt to me, so I don't have to serve you anymore. Until you re-even the scale back up. All my service is conditional then if I do that, if I have to get something back when I serve. I don't serve that way. I'm, I'm, I'm above serving that way. I should get something for me when I do that. No, it's just not true. I shouldn't serve if it's embarrassing. If it's beneath me. Don't you know what my coworkers will think if I serve them like this? 
They'll think less of me. They'll punk me. They'll make fun of me. They'll tease me if I serve like that. My pride won't let me do it. Oh, your pride is the thing? Let me just have a little honest conversation with you a moment because the scripture's pretty clear that God opposes the proud and gives grace to the humble. Opposes the proud. Like, you're on that team, I'm on this team, we're against each other. When pride is the reason, the core, the, the thing that's keeping you from doing what God's called you to do, you're on the wrong team. He's opposing that in you. And listen, I gotta be honest with you, there's only but two teams. There's God's team and the other team, the enemy's team. And he operates through guilt, manipulation, power, pride, all of those things that he tries to twist and distort, lies and deception. And God says, when you're proud and proud is the motivating thing and the reason you won't do it, that's beneath me. I'm not picking up that bag. Whoo. You better see and recognize that and kill that quick you're on the wrong team. That's the wrong team. That's the losing team, guys. I read the end. That's the losing team. I shouldn't serve. It's embarrassing. Last, I should only serve people who deserve it. Oh, that hits me in the feels. I should only serve people. That person's in that situation because they make bad choices and I didn't make those bad choices, so that's not my problem. I should only serve people that deserve it, except, except, you forgot our timeline of events. Alabaster jar of perfume. Transaction, murder for hire essentially happens. Judas receives silver pieces for betraying Jesus, and then this moment. So that means as Jesus was working the table, washing feet, he got to Judas. Now listen, if Jesus modeled that with all power and authority, he could serve the person who had conspired to allow him to be murdered, then there's no one who's beneath our level of heart to serve. It just doesn't work that way. He peeled back this excuse and said, this excuse is not an acceptable excuse. And I know this is hard for us church folks sometimes because we get into the mix and listen, we're tired of getting beat up by users and abusers and we need healthy boundaries and I understand that and we teach that and that's true and it's good. But it don't get to, we never get to say, I don't have to serve any of these people because they don't deserve it. They wouldn't be in that situation if they didn't make those choices. Jesus didn't operate that way. And his closest group of friends, one of his brothers betrays him. And he knows it. And he has all power and authority. I'm just going to be real for a second. Judas would not make it out of that room alive. I'd be like, I got it. I got to go to the cross. That's fine. But lightning bolt. <laughs> Zap. Instead, he strips down and he washes his feet and he models serving someone who in his, all of our estimation, would not have seemed to deserve it, but in his estimation was worth it. So if you're a Jesus follower... We just got to come to this simple truth. Serving is not something you do. It's just who we are. It's not something we do. 
just who we are. And we are invited to experience the joy and the happiness of a life that's just doing what God designed us to do and the blessing and the provision that comes from being like Jesus. And that's our goal, right? To be like him. And so he models this incredible, and he goes, you're not gonna get it right now, but generations to come, they're gonna have to understand this. And here's what's crazy. They did get it. And because they got it, they went into a culture that was selfish, that was anti-God, that was take everything you can get and give nothing back. And they started modeling this kind of behavior and they started a movement and these 12 dudes and this gathering of people and one of them doesn't even make it, Judas, literally changed the world. And you're here today because they believed in the blessing that would come if they would serve like this, if they would live like this. And they gave their lives away and you're benefiting today from that and hearing about the truth of who Jesus is because of that. If 12 people could get a hold of that principle and that heart and literally change the world, can you imagine if the people in this room got a hold of that, that we couldn't change the South Hill, that we couldn't change this neighborhood, that the the cul-de-sac, the block you live on couldn't be impacted and changed? If we kind of figured out how to live like that, our park and rec district couldn't get changed, our school district couldn't get changed, couldn't have impact, couldn't have uh, uh, the experience and the blessing and the provision of Jesus if we didn't get a hold of maybe just a little something. Can you imagine? So I'm gonna be honest with you, church. I really believe the next five weeks are gonna be incredibly important launch pad kind of weeks. And you should... Try to be at church, and I get it if you can't be. Follow along online, do what you got to do. Again, I'm not working through guilt. I'm just telling you, you're free and figure out a way. Because we're going to unpack some things. Next week, I'm going to teach on fasting like I've never taught on fasting before. And we're going to talk about how do we get breakthrough and get through the lid that we're facing wherever we're at by denying our, our flesh and teaching our flesh that it's not in charge. And come on now, we're, we're spirit-driven, spirit-filled creatures. We're gonna create space and margin so that we can grow. Then we're gonna walk through the ne- next several weeks and just really ask the question, how do you know if you're growing? Like I know, like there's a lot of ways. I, could, I measure my kids, right? I got a stick and I put it against them and I put a little mark on. I know that they're growing, How do I know that you're growing in your walk with the Lord? How do you know if you're growing? And we're gonna walk through some some tools and and how to do that. I'm gonna try to do everything I can to equip you to know so that we're moving forward. Then we're gonna launch into Rooted and I'm gonna do everything I can to convince you that the church understood right from the beginning that if we get together in circles and houses together and talk and do life together and build each other up and carry each other's burdens the way scripture's asked us to do, we could be stronger than any other force on planet earth. I'm gonna do everything I can to convince you to do that. We're going to launch into that. And I'm just believing that this little neighborhood, this little area, I'm believing big, can begin to experience the transformational blessing that happens when the people of God start living like Jesus. And the stuff that comes out of us, the stories and the testimonies, I think we're going to be surprised and shocked and blessed. Uh, We're going to be dunking people and baptizing people. We're going to be celebrating because of what God's done. Lives are going to get changed. And we're just going to be on a journey to do it. 
And some of it's going to look like picking up bags of stuff in the parking lot. And some of it's going to look like wiping that same stuff from the nursery kids. And then some of that's going to, you know, I don't know what it's going to look like for you. If you're a hammer, swing. If you're a shoe, let's go. But let's do it. This is our shot. This is what we're here for. This is the moment that we're here on earth. And this is the time. We're going to sing the song. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty who was and is and is to come. And we're going to be excited and we're going to be celebrating. But this is the time where we get to build the choir of voices by saying, one more voice. One more voice. Come with me. This is going to be awesome. One more voice. Hey, have you heard? Do you not know? Have you heard what Jesus has done for you? Come with me. Let me tell you the story. And we had one more voice, and then one more voice, and then one more voice. Why? Because God so loved the world. And so we get to go love the world. How cool would that be? So would you stand with me? Some of you are scared to death right now. You're like, oh, he wants us to do stuff. Yeah. I want you to hear the voice of God and obey. And then I want you to peel the lid off of what your expectation of what the creator of the universe can do. Because if he can speak and then there's light, then what can he do today? God, we love you. We thank you. We're crazy excited about the potential of what you want to do in, in us and through us. We recognize all the reasons we've been stuck or we felt stuck. And I pray right now for those of us that have just been in a rut. I pray that, that there wouldn't be a sense of complacency or contentment. Like, well, you know, at least I got my fire insurance. I don't think I'm going to hell. So what difference does it make if I live like hell here? God, we just get rid of that entire thinking from us. We reject it. We want to experience as much of what you have for us right now as possible so that anyone and everyone could know how much you love them and what you've done for them. And if you can move in 12 guys and inspire them to live counterculturally to change the world, then what if we got inspired? What could you do through us? So we just trust you, and it's somewhat scary, but we want to live by faith, and it's somewhat risky, and it may cost us something, but I'd rather give my life being in the game. I'm tired of riding the pine, so I'm going to step out in faith and just trust you. And we just love you and we thank you. In Jesus' name, amen and amen. I love you, church. I'm excited. I'm ready to go to battle. I hope you're ready to go to battle. Let's have some fun. Amen. Have an awesome week in the Lord.